from the Center for European Reform. This is the CEA podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Good morning and welcome to the CER podcast. Um, my name is Luigi Scazzieri. I'm a research fellow at the Centre for European Reform. And today uh, I'm speaking to Ian Bond, who's our Director of Foreign Policy on uh, Russia. So, Ian, just to, to jump straight into it, Russia's uh, had quite a bad year so far, we could say, in the sense that it was first hit by the, the drop in the oil price by engaging in an oil price war and then by, by coronavirus. Do you want to maybe start off by telling us a bit about how it's dealt with with these two crises and indeed how they came about, perhaps? Yeah, well, the the oil price war is an entirely self-inflicted wound. Um, The the oil price at the beginning of the year was uh, something over $60 a barrel for for Russian crude oil. And that was a very comfortable price for the Russian Treasury, uh, Russian Finance Ministry, um, which sort of aims to get the budget to balance at just over $40 a barrel. Um, and any any surplus above that can go into the Sovereign Wealth Fund, the National Welfare Fund, it's called, and that pays for any shortfalls in pensions or social spending or whatever. And that's something that Putin was quite keen on boosting this, this year. As we're talking today, the price of Russian oil is just over $20 a barrel, and it's been a bit lower than that. Uh, that's because the Russian oil giant Rosneft uh, decided that this was just the moment to try to take the fight to Saudi Arabia and to US shale producers and to uh, drive some of the higher cost producers out of the market and to to benefit um, from the resulting uh, reduction in, in supply. What actually happened was that Saudi Arabia didn't blink um, and turned out to be better equipped than Russia was to deal with um, a glut of supply on the on the international market. Uh, US shale producers, though they're certainly suffering, are actually pretty flexible when it comes to turning on and off their um, their production. And so Russia's probably suffered more than more than anyone else. And as I say, now is um, seeing oil at a price, you know, $20 or so below what the Russian finance ministry was expecting and hoping for, which means they're going to have to dip into their reserves as well. And then to compound the problems of the oil market, along came COVID-19. And suddenly you're looking at a global recession and many of Russia's major markets for oil and gas uh, contracting quite dramatically. And that's going to that's going to put a big hit on the on the Russian economy. Uh, I've seen a very wide range of estimates of how bad things are going to be. Russian Central Bank is estimating, I think, about a six percent drop in the 
in uh, Russian GDP this year. I mean, interestingly for me, Alexei Kudrin, who is the head of Russia's audit chamber, so the kind of equivalent of the UK National Audit Office, and therefore somebody who has a pretty good idea of what's going on inside the Russian economy, is forecasting a drop in GDP of 7 to 8%. Uh, and that would be really pretty dramatic and have a major impact on Putin's ability to carry out some of his plans that he had at the beginning of this year for boosting the Russian economy. Yes. How, how, what do you think the impact would be in, internally in terms of the constitutional reforms that, uh, that he was planning to launch and, uh, and this relaunch of the economy? Well... <laughs> As far as the constitutional reforms are concerned, um, what Putin is, is doing is trying to give himself the ability to stay in office if he so chooses until 2036, at which point he'll be 83 years old. Um, now, previously, he would have had to step down in 2024 at the end of his second consecutive six-year term under the current constitution. Uh, so he he sort of engineered it so that he can now stay in power for a lot longer. Um, and he was putting that to a popular vote or planning to put that to a popular vote on the 22nd of April and coupling it with various social guarantees which he was writing into the constitution on indexation of pensions and on um, increasing min the, the minimum wage. And I think there must be real question marks over affordability now. Not because, not because Russia can't technically afford this. As I say, it has quite significant reserves built up at, time, at the time of high oil prices that it could fall back on. And it could certainly borrow against the, the strength of the Russian economy. Uh, but Putin is allergic to external borrowing. He might be able to do some internal borrowing. You know, plenty of people have got savings in Russia and they might be persuaded one way or another to buy Russian government bonds on a, on a domestic bond market. But what Putin can't do is what you know many countries would would choose to do in these circumstances, which is to go to the international markets and dump a few billion worth of Russian treasury bonds um, and use that to fill the gaps in the Russian budget until the economy recovers. So that, that it seems to me makes it more complicated for him to maintain public support. Uh, people had gone through several years of austerity anyway, and now they're looking forward probably to a significant amount of time further uh, in quite austere conditions and without pensions and minimum salaries going up. And do we know whether, you know, that there's been an impact in public opinion already from these uh, these changes? Well, you always have to treat Russian public opinion surveys with a lot of caution because, um, you know, frankly speaking, if somebody comes up to you on the street and says, what is your opinion of Vladimir Putin? And you say, I think the guy is absolutely doing an absolutely terrible job. He should be sent to Siberia. Um, you know, you may find that that is um, 
has negative impact on your um, life chances. Uh, so, you know, people are quite cautious, I think, about what they say to Russian pollsters. But even with that in mind, there are signs um, that Putin's popularity is falling. I mean, most Western politicians would still envy it. It's still in, in the sort of low 60%. But that's down from the sort of high 80s um, in 2014 after the annexation of Crimea. So, you know, Putin has seen a drop in popularity uh, and that probably will have some impact um, if he does reinstate this popular vote on the constitutional amendments later in the year. And indeed, it may have longer term impact if the, if the economy stays uh, in, a, in a difficult state. Yes. And your mention of Crimea um, brings us quite nicely, I suppose, to the external dimension of, uh, of these dual crises. So how, how do you see that playing out? Will, will Russia's relationships with China, with Europe and the US, how, how will they change if they will change? Yeah, I mean, Putin, I think, hoped that this would be a great year for his foreign policy as well. Uh, on May the 9th, Russia will celebrate the end of what they call the Great Patriotic War, or the Second World War or the part of the Second World War that the Soviet Union took part in. Um, and um, Putin was looking forward to welcoming an international cast, including Xi Jinping from China, uh, Emmanuel Macron from France, and possibly, though not certainly, uh, Donald Trump from the US. Trump had certainly expressed interest in attending this um, grand military parade on Red Square and the other events that Putin was hoping to uh, to put around that. That and, and just to clarify, you wouldn't get such an attendance every year? You would not get such an attendance every year. It would, I think, have been quite controversial anyway for those Western leaders who went to it because of um, the, the, the annexation of Crimea and the continued presence of Russian forces on Ukrainian territory and the sanctions that go along with that. Um, but nonetheless, I think, you know, some of them at least would probably have, have turned up uh, thinking that this was a time to be building bridges with um, with Russia. Uh, that's obviously not going to happen because of, of COVID-19. So that's, uh, that's a sort of a bit of a setback. Um, I think, you know, the, the big relationship that Putin has developed successfully over the last few years has been with Xi Jinping. And um, the, the COVID-19 crisis and the drop in the oil price are both having some impact on the balance of power between those two. I mean, the COVID-19 crisis is a problem for relations because the first thing that Russia did was to close the border with China, which was unpopular with the Chinese. There were some xenophobic incidents involving Chinese people in Russia. Uh, that also was very unpopular with the Chinese. And now the Chinese um, are seeing cases of COVID-19 coming back across the border from Russia. And so they're pretty unhappy with the Russians over the state of the Russian healthcare system and, um, you know, quarantine and isolation measures if if uh, you've got these um, these cases coming back into, into China. So, you know, there's a bit of tension there, although I wouldn't want to exaggerate that. But I think the other thing is that this really 
um, tilts the balance of power in that relationship even further towards China in the sense that when the oil price is very low, uh, China can become Russia's savior in a sense. I mean, it can buy cheap oil and put it into into um, storage in China to the extent that it has storage available. Um, and in the long term, that's good for China. And in the short term, it means that, that Russia has a revenue stream from it. Um, it can also offer to um, to be, you know, the kind of savior investor for some oil and gas projects. Now, we haven't seen that yet. But I'm, I'm watching with interest to see whether uh, China becomes the, the kind of um, rescuer for, for uh, some big investment projects. Um, but also if China emerges, as it seems to be emerging, earlier from the COVID-19 crisis than many other big uh, markets in the world, uh, then you know Russia is almost inevitably going to find that it becomes more dependent on the success of China's economy for its own revenue streams. So I think the you know the balance of power there has tilted. When it comes to the U.S., I mean, Putin I think is going to be torn in a sense because um, he doesn't want Trump to lose the the election. Um, Trump is on the whole quite a good thing for for Putin. Uh, not, you know, saying necessarily, as it were, that Trump is Putin's man, um, though I'm sure there are plenty of people in America who would uh, worry that that is the case. But just in the sense that the chaos that Trump sows, both domestically and in America's relations with its allies, is on the whole quite helpful for Putin. Um, so I think, you know, he'd quite like another four years of, of Trump. Um uh, but, you know, at the, at the same time, um, he doesn't want Trump to be more successful than he has to be in tackling with the COVID-19 crisis because, you know, a weak and polarised America is better for Putin in Putin's way of looking at the world than a, a strong, confident and successful America. So, you know, from that perspective, I think He'll he'll be watching with mixed feelings, hoping that Trump is successful enough to win re-election, but not so successful that the U.S. starts to leap forward again economically or in foreign policy terms. And then one, when one looks at, at Europe, I mean, again, I think this is quite a problem for for Putin because um, he will certainly be looking to get EU sanctions against Russia lifted. And so, you know, you, I'm sure you'll see more publicity stunts to, um, to show that, you know, Russia is helping countries get out of the COVID-19 crisis in the way that he's already sent um, aid to, to Italy. Um, but he also needs some economic recovery in, in Europe uh, because no matter how much the Chinese buy, the Europeans are still going to be a very major market for Russian oil and gas. And the worse the European economy does, the less they will buy from Russia. And that's very bad for, for Russia's economy. So, you know, again, I think he's going to be watching with mixed feelings. He'll want Europe to recover enough to, um, to be able to, uh, to, to start buying oil and gas from Russia again. 
but not so much that they feel strong and confident and powerful and um, able to continue to impose tough sanctions on Russia for its behavior in Crimea and elsewhere. And so in terms of this behavior in Crimea and elsewhere, is there a chance that economic pressure internally would push Putin towards a more conciliatory stance, or is there no chance at all of that? Well, this is this is a really difficult question to answer at the moment. Uh, I mean, there is some evidence in the past that when the oil price has been high, Putin has been at his most assertive. So you can see that in uh, 2008 with the, the war against Georgia and again in 2013-14 when he was ramping up pressure on Ukraine ultimately um, culminating in the in the annexation of Crimea and the invasion of eastern Ukraine. So there is some evidence that high oil prices make Putin more confident externally. Uh, but there there is also a concern that if the domestic situation becomes complicated, he may need some external distraction to get people to rally around the flag. And so I think even if you can't see much sign at the moment, uh, Europeans need to look very carefully both at the internal narratives on Russia, in the Russian state media, um, you know, in the run-up to the wars with Georgia and Ukraine, there was quite a lot of propaganda to make people feel that Georgia and Ukraine were threats to um, to Russian interests. So I think we need to watch for any of that sort of domestically focused propaganda, but also to look at, at external disinformation that's designed to make um, Europe or the West uh, more divided or make them look at certain countries as not particularly attractive places and therefore harder to defend. So you know, an example of that in 2014 was the constant narrative that Ukraine had been taken over by neo-Nazis, uh, which bore no resemblance whatever to the truth, but did have an impact on some parts of the political spectrum in Western countries, making people less inclined to say, well, you know, Ukraine is the victim um, of a Russian invasion rather than the Russians are going in to defend the interests of their compatriots against Ukrainian neo-Nazis. As I say, a, a, a story which had absolutely no substance to it, um, but which did, I think, have some some impact in some quarters in the West. So we need to be really careful, vigilant, watching out for what Russia is saying to itself and what Russia is saying to us and wondering what the purpose of that is. Well, on that note, thank you very much, Ian. It's been very interesting. I hope that you've all uh, enjoyed uh, listening to our podcast. Please remember to subscribe and give us your feedback. And goodbye from us too. Thanks, Luigi. Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.